Today our scripture lesson comes from John 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He had said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. A woman named Mary wasted perfume on Jesus, and it was quite extraordinary, even scandalous. The type of story that's gossiped about in committee meetings, offices, and even quiet church corridors type of thing that wouldn't happen in polite society. This Bible story seems to have a pretty traditional cast of characters. We have Judas, the antagonist, who deceitfully tries to protect his own interests and criticizes Mary, the underdog, when she behaves differently than he expected her to. In addition, we also have Jesus, the hero that comes to the underdog's rescue and defends her from the antagonist's attack. It's really set up to be an intriguing story. We all love a good story where good triumphs evil, the underdog is successful, and the villain's plot is finally foiled. It could be so easy to stop and take this story at its face value and to simply rely on our predefined cast of characters. But as Christians, and especially good Presbyterians, we are committed to the faithful interpretation of Scripture. Sometimes that makes things a little bit messier. So I truly believe we might need to stop and dig just a little bit deeper into this story. At first glance, it appears that Mary is the only faithful disciple who devotes herself and all that she has to Jesus. In fact, Mary serves as a model for Christian discipleship. She utters not a single word, but by her extravagant act of love, the costly use of fragrance to anoint the feet of Jesus, she demonstrates her willingness to offer all that she had to Jesus in worship. Judas, on the other hand, the unfaithful disciple, who steals from the common purse and will eventually betray Jesus. Now, I will give Judas this. He makes a valiant effort to legitimize and even validate his actions. He turns to Mary and asks, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? On the surface, Judas appears to be outraged that the nard was not sold for money, which was equivalent to a year's wages. Think about that. A year's wages. What do you make in a year? It's pretty significant. The narrator of the story, however, discloses Judas's dirty secret to us. His motives were not, in fact, so pure. It wasn't really his concern for the poor, but rather protection of the money that he had hoped to steal. If we were watching a movie, this would cue the dun-dun-dun-dun part of it. 
It's understandable that as soon as we hear about Judas's true motives, the how dare he's, what was he thinking, and hmm, what a selfish jerks rise up in our heads. We know that we could never do something so horrible to a woman who is simply trying to give all she had to Jesus. Yes, it's definitely easy to allow the chorus of boo Judas to rise up in our minds. However, both characters are included in this amazing and poignant story, both the faithful and the one who is not. I think this inclusion warrants our closer attention to the story, what it might be saying to us. It certainly implies that both the faithful and the unfaithful play a part in God's great story. So let me play devil's advocate just for a second. Bear with me as we step into Judas's shoes for a moment. Let's all pause, get comfortable, and imagine that we're Judas. If you need to close your eyes, feel free to do so. I want you to really feel like you're living this story. It's been a busy year for you since you'd been following this Jesus guy. You had jumped on the bandwagon with a couple of other guys and had been learning from the new radical that was in town named Jesus. At first, you felt inspired by the passion for change that you observed in Jesus' ministry. And you might have even enjoyed participating in a movement that seemed to buck at the Jewish establishment. But after a little while, you realized that you might have gotten more than you bargained for. Jesus had been talking in weird riddles and acting like he might be going away soon. How could this be? Your little group was a group. You couldn't lose your leader. You were tired from traveling and interacting with all of the people that Jesus encountered. Eventually, you start thinking, hey, this is my ministry too. Why shouldn't I deserve some of the money we have? We traveled and worked hard for it. It's only fair. So you devise your plan to take the money from the common purse, feeling fully justified by your hard work and therefore deserving the payoff. Your plan was all set when you and the whole group receive a dinner invitation. You love dinner parties, and you knew it was going to be a great dinner, considering that Jesus had raised one of the hosts, Lazarus, from the dead. But before you could even enjoy your delicious feast, Mary, who you had always thought was a bit prone to drama, intended to be a bit of an attention hog, approaches Jesus. You roll your eyes thinking, oh goodness, what is this woman going to do now? Much to your dismay, you see her take out insanely expensive perfume and proceed to pour it on Jesus' feet. Stop! Stop! Your mind screams. That stuff is expensive. It costs an entire year's wages. You're even more disgusted when you see that Mary kneels before Jesus and washes his feet with her hair. This isn't appropriate. How awkward. I don't need to see this. This should be behind closed doors. This is not how I worship. You internally cry. Finally, you're overcome with your feelings of anger and awkwardness. So you cry out to Jesus, thinking that surely he would rebuke her sinful behavior. You even suggest a faithful and logical alternative. The money should have been donated to the poor. Obviously, this perfume should have been sold. This would have been the heart of Jesus' ministry, caring for others. You were totally in line. However, your insult turns to injury, and Jesus rebukes you for your words. How dare he tell you to leave that woman alone? Your sense of superiority slowly fades into resignation, 
as you realize that not only did your plan to add to the common purse and therefore your ultimate payoff fail miserably, but your attempt to justify it to Jesus didn't work so well. I can only imagine that Judas left that dinner feeling pretty awkward and maybe even a little bit angry. Who do you identify with? I know that when I first read this story, I thought, surely I identify with Mary. I could never identify with Judas. But as I studied more, I realized I did, in fact, identify with Judas. The truth is, we're all probably a little bit of a combination of both. A complicated and paradoxical people who both desire to worship Jesus at whatever the cost, but also hold tight to security, logic, and rationality. I think once we step into the shoes of Judas, it's easy to realize that we often struggle with the same emotions that he did. In fact, even the church, both here and the universal church, struggle with the same emotions as Judas. It's easy to think, certainly I would not behave in this way, or certainly my church or organization would not behave this way. But the truth is we're all human and in need of grace. I think we should probably cut ourselves and Judas just a little bit of slack. Now, by no means am I suggesting that it's okay or even justified to steal from church or ministry funds. But I am saying that I think we often hold tight to the gifts and opportunities that we have been given in order to store them up for practical use. I mean, what serious church that goes about discipleship does not struggle with the tension between money spent in beautiful acts of worship and money spent on behalf of the poor or in other justifiable causes? Much of modern religion even focuses on what is useful, practical, and cost-effective. It's only natural to be concerned about finances when resources appear to be slim. And what prudent head of household wouldn't save income for unforeseeable circumstances or enact a reasonable budget for their household? It's only prudent to be good stewards of what you have been given. However, we must never let stewardship prevent us from worshiping in whatever manner we're being called. The truth of the matter is, a true gift cannot be controlled. Either we love generously or we do not. Either we are engaged with providing for those in need or we're secretly hoarding, hoarding what otherwise be shared. Either we carefully calculate every risk or we live authentically and enthusiastically into the life of discipleship. The Lenten season is a time of reflection, preparation, fasting, and even repentance as we approach Easter. Often, we give up something in order to make room for more. Or we take on a practice that will enhance our spiritual lives. It's a time to search our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and to give even more of ourselves to God. I think this passage is especially fitting as we approach Palm Sunday next week a joyful occurrence where Jesus entered into the very city that would soon turn their backs on him. Yet Jesus entered joyfully, and those around him worshipped freely. We are called to worship joyfully, freely, and constantly. Evelyn Underhill writes that worship is summed up in sacrifice. The movement of generosity in response to God's sacrificial act of redemption in Christ and our participation in it. We worship because we know of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, the very sacrifice that we celebrate on Good Friday 
and the resurrection that we rejoice in on Easter Sunday. We worship because we are called to participate in the great story of the gospel, not just read it. We worship ultimately because God first loved us, even when we were Judas, even when we still are Judas. Here in this passage lies an invitation to daily companionship with Jesus, at the table and in the streets. Invites us to extravagant acts of compassion and generosity in moments of worship. All of this happens in a world which lives by a mindset of scarcity rather than a mindset of abundance and so tempts us to close in and live that life as well. As children of God, we must be tempted not to do this, even when things feel tight or strained or difficult. We must remember the promise that was given to us, the promise of the Easter message that we prepare our hearts for during Lent. We are redeemed. We were given grace, and we are beloved children of God. Therefore, we must live in worship, constantly praising God for these things. What do you need to relinquish in order to worship? A woman named Mary wasted perfume on Jesus, and it was the most beautiful example of extraordinary worship that would expire generations of believers to come. Amen. As we prepare our hearts to worship through offering, I invite the band to come forward.